Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. I think I've seen something in Indonesia, in Indonesia before. A couple of backpackers had stole something from someone and they were they were put like a sign was put on them around the neck and they were paraded like around this little beach island like and it was in the media I love, i'm a big big fan of like the elementary school punishments because in getting being embarrassed is the worst thing right you, you kind of lose your street cred what's up everybody welcome back to another week of no blackout dates my name is tim and i'm evan Tommy Walker joins us today, a foreign correspondent originally from the UK, currently based between Bangkok and Taiwan. We're going to be chatting Taiwan, what will happen if aggressions with China intensify there, how that will affect tourism, and what's going on in Thailand, Ukraine, and around the region. First, though, we've got hot takes. And Evan, my question for you, given the topic of today's episode, how easily are you put off by travel restrictions or warnings? Does that impact your plans? And if you were already paid and booked to go to a place like Taiwan, would you change course at the last minute? You mean travel warnings because of safety, because of an ongoing uh, political or military conflict, right? Correct, yeah. Whatever whatever I, might have driven it. Yeah, I mean, it's a case-by-case basis. I think this, um, uh, the State Department issues warnings fairly liberally. I think a lot of places that I have been have been extremely safe, yet the State Department would say use caution when traveling here. So I think it's kind of tough. I mean, if there's an active, ongoing military coup, like in Myanmar, that is a place I wouldn't travel to when while that is going on. Or if whatever military or political action is happening is going to affect how I can enjoy the trip. If things are going to be closed, if uh, travel, if um, transportation is going to be restricted or more difficult, then yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go. It's going to ruin the trip. But if it's more of a, when, so when I went to Myanmar, uh, for example, this is several years before the coup, there was a, uh, the ongoing genocide of the Rohingya people in, I think the Northwest of the country. And that was, I think, the, C, the CDC, so used to the CDC issuing warnings. Uh, the State Department issued a travel warning there because the, the Myanmar government was persecuting this group of Muslims in the northwest of the country and has been the subject of uh, like human rights abuses and a lot of international condemnation. But that kind of a thing, while it might be ethically dubious to visit a country at that time and give them your tourism money, it doesn't pose any threat to me. So in that situation, I felt perfectly safe to go and visit 99% of the country, which was safe. So I, I don't know. What, what do you think? I, I agree uh, for the most part. I think the one caveat I would say would be, and you kind of alluded to it too, would be that if, if visiting there is not wanted by the local residents at the time due to them having to be prioritizing a conflict. And if that's happened, then yes, that's probably when all the stuff is going to be closed because travel just isn't a priority at the time. But in general, yes, the uh, the State Department is very liberal with their with their warnings. Uh, they currently have a warning out for Kyrgyzstan, which I'm visiting in a couple months and have no plans to, to, to change my course there. Um, but yeah, I think in a, a lot of situations, places need 
the tourism dollars. They don't want people to just stop coming because of some potential, uh, 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 some potential threat that's that's looming or or could happen. You know, it's, it, there's a difference between something that could happen and something that is happening. What is the Kyrgyzstan warning about? There was just a conflict at the Kyrgyz-Tajikistan border. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, refugees from Russia spilling over that are trying to avoid the draft. So, okay. Uh, the, yeah, the I mean, so that is... kind of thing, it, it's more of an isolated incident. Right. I mean, I certainly wouldn't visit U- Ukraine, I don't know about right now, but several weeks ago when, you know, the fighting was much more intense. And that that's a very real danger you're putting yourself in. But on the other hand, when I did my uh, road trip through the Balkans, we were supposed to drive through Macedonia, and they temporarily closed the Macedonian border for, I think, like 24 hours because there was a um, protest in the Macedonian parliament that turned violent, almost like their version of January 6th. And like Congress or whatever, their version of congressmen got beat up and they closed the border as like a precautionary measure. And I mean, I think during that time it was recommended to not go there. Would I have not gone there because of that reason? That has nothing to do with me as a tourist going, you know, miles and miles and miles away from the capital. So it's, it's all about the situation. Right. And, and the State the State Department, it's their job to make travelers aware of things that are happening uh, and could happen to them, even if that's a very, very remote chance of them being impacted. So uh, I, I think that, you know, you need to actually read the report and not just the headline to see. Yeah. The State Department is like your mom who tells you to wear like a billion layers and a rain jacket to go outside when it's like 50 degrees out. You know, it's like it's their job to worry about you. It's your job to kind of scale it back and say, okay, this is what's reasonable. Look up the sky, see if it's actually raining, and then make a decision. Uh, so my hot takes for you is very similar, uh, almost too similar. <laughs> so hopefully we're not repeating ourselves. But Ukraine right now is actually encouraging tourists to come back again. And this might change. This is only what we're, where we're at right now. But would you go to a place like Ukraine right now if the country who is currently and has very recently been embroiled in a dangerous ongoing military conflict if that country was actively inviting you inviting tourists i depending on the area of the country yes because i understand that they pro, they need economic an economic boost and additionally you know ukraine's a beautiful country that has a lot of stuff to promote and a lot of you know a lot of things happening there culturally that have been happening there for centuries. So I, I've always wanted to go to Odessa, for example. I don't know if I would go to Odessa right now, but I might visit somewhere in the far west of the country. Uh, I, I'm not going to put myself in the line of fire, though. You know, it, just as a tourist, I think it's it's different to do sure, that as yeah. a tourist than as some you know, like as a reporter on the front lines covering the conflict. They have more of a reason to go to something like that. I feel like there's a there's a line where you're more in the way as a traveler than you are having any type of cultural experience that's benefiting you and the destination, you know, and you've got to be mindful of that line. Yeah, well said. Uh, Actually, along similar lines and probably a more interesting question, would you go to Russia? Absolutely not. I'm assuming it's possible. I don't know if it's possible to go to Russia. I don't know if they're accepting American tourists, whatever. But much safer, you know, Russia's not the country that's being bombarded. Safer for you as a tourist, if the opportunity arose, say a press trip for Matador to go to Russia 
five days, go to wherever, like St. Petersburg, Moscow, see some cool stuff, would you accept? No, because I'm not going to shine a positive light on them with my work right now. Though I understand that a lot of people in Russia are not in favor of what's happening right now, and those people need to be heard. So I, I do see that that would be the one thing that would get me to want to go would be to communicate with people like that. But I, I think my, my answer would be no, unless there was a very, very good reason for it. At what point would you go to Russia, if ever? So like, obviously, while this is going on right now, it's a little testy. But ethically, how far down the road, say the conflict ends, say the war is, you know, is over, when do you feel okay going to Russia? I think it's important to draw a line between citizens and their government. I don't think that the Russians in general can be judged by Putin. Right. Uh, some of them, sure, but the, the, as a whole, you can't judge a country by its by its leaders because they they're not in control of that. Obviously, Putin is an autocratic leader, and uh, he's the one making these decisions. So I I wouldn't hold this against Russia Russians forever. Uh, when the conflict has died down, if there's a change in leadership, there are a number of things that would convince me to go to Russia. I would love to go to Russia and ride the train. I would love to go snowboarding there. There are a lot of amazing things in Russia. I would I would love to see Red Square, St. Basil's, all this stuff that, you know, is, is well known. Uh, I just don't think now is the right time to do it. And I think that there would there, there will be a line in the future when it is my opinion changes on that. I don't know exactly when that will be. Very reasonable. I agree. All right. Well, with that, we'll get into it with Tommy and we'll see you on the other side. Right. Tommy Walker is an international foreign correspondent currently based in Bangkok, though he splits his time between there, Taiwan, and elsewhere in Asia. He's been a writer for all sorts of publications, including Matador Network. Tommy, we're glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, lots to talk about. Right on. So let's dive into what I think is on the mind of a lot of international travelers right now, and that is Taiwan What's going on with travel in Taiwan? Is the kind of pressure from China changing the, the attitude there? Are people nervous to go there? What do the Taiwanese people think? Uh, do you see we'll, – we'll, we'll start there and then we'll move on. Sure, sure. I mean, look, Taiwan is just – it's just dropped – it's just opened open up for tourists right now. There's going to be no quarantine for arrivals. Uh, Taiwan's like in comp- it competes with Hong Kong. So anything Hong Kong does, Taiwan will try and follow. And it's, you know, a bit like that, especially when it comes to attracting, you know, tourists and, and re- restarting the economy. But yeah, Taiwan, look, obviously it had some issues um, this year with China, as it does pretty much every day. China basically flies its planes into, um, you know, part of an area that, it's not sort of the airspace of Taiwan, but it's the outer airspace, if you like. It's the uh, air identification zone. Basically, what happens is it's seen as a threat. So people, obviously the media, including myself, reported about these sort of issues. Um, and to the wider world, it looks like, wow, there's going to be like another invasion uh, with Russia's invasion in Ukraine. But right on the ground, Taiwan, like, it's super chill. Like, you know, people are like, you speak to people who are informed, like politically people, you know, reporters or political analysts or people who just want to sort of work in government. They'll talk to you about it and they're like, OK, yeah, we're, we're taking things more seriously. But the general population, I mean, they're just they're, they're really chill. I think when China fired some missiles over some of Taiwan's islands um, 
in August um, because of the Nancy Pelosi visit. They did some military exercises. The Taiwanese went to this island and it was like a firework display to them. They were just like, oh, wow, this is such a spectacle. Like, you know, they weren't taking it seriously, even though reportedly ballistic missiles had been fired over the island, which is, you know, pretty serious stuff. Yeah, Um, that's a big deal. Yeah. So honestly, Taiwan on the ground, everyone's super chill. But again, the people who were involved and were following it, they obviously are taking more precautions. There is... You know, there is some people, citizens are looking to do sort of more weapons training, uh, weapons training, sorry, more uh, uh, health and safety tra- training, how to use tourniquets, if there's ever issues, things like that, um, and some weapons training too. So there is a slight increase of people taking precautions, but if you were to walk around Taiwan as a, you know, as a visitor, as a traveler, it's just like, okay, yeah, what's the problem? That's what it feels like. Can you put this whole tension between Taiwan and China in historical context? Because I think most Americans probably have a very superficial to no understanding of what's going on right now and what's led up to it. Very easily, China thinks Taiwan's part of its part of China. Uh, Nineteen forty-nine civil war, the communist communist China um, beat uh, beat the opposition forces in Taiwan who fled uh, in China who fled to Taiwan. Taiwan's been acting. Taiwan is acts like a country. When you go there, everything has its own borders, its own currency. But China believes it's part of you know their territory. Um, the U.S. recognizes the 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 so-called One China policy, um, which basically recognizes Beijing as the only China. Um, but the U.S. is still helping Taiwan in certain aspects. Um, it doesn't have any official ties, but they sort of have economic ties and uh, no, no diplomatic ties, but they still want to help Taiwan as, as much as they can without stepping over that line with China. 73 years ago, civil war, the people, the opposition to the communists fled to Taiwan. Taiwan's been acting as itself, as an independent state all this time. China still believes it's part of their territory. That's where it comes from. So it is relatively similar to something else that people can relate to right now in the news, which is the Ukraine war in that yeah. Russia thinking that Ukraine is part of the old Soviet Union and trying to, I mean, obviously there's a lot of cultural and historic differences, but is that is what's happening in Ukraine worsening the anxiety in Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely taking, they're look, well, Taiwan and China are both looking at what's happening in Ukraine. For, for different reasons. Taiwan are looking at, you know, maybe how Ukraine's been defending itself, the international support, the sanctions on Russia, um, what the international reaction is. And obviously people in Taiwan are taking notice because people say, you know, Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow, like they used to say about Hong Kong, which is obviously a little bit different. But, um, you know, they are taking notice. China are looking at sort of how, you know, what, what happens in Ukraine, how the Ukrainians are taking to Russia's invasion, um, how the world has sanctioned Russia. If China was to do that to Taiwan, would the would the international community do the same to China? China cares a lot, prioritizes its economic growth. I mean, if you look at China's recent history, last 40, 50 years, it's had an incredible rise with its economy. China is all about business. And, you know, it's definitely looking at the Ukraine situation to think, well, if we were to invade Taiwan, what sanctions would we get? Which countries would decouple from us, if you like? Do you think that the world would react the same way to China that you, that they're reacting to Ukraine, given how 
important China is to the world economy, it's maybe easier to decouple from Russia than it is from China? Do you think consequences would be as harsh? It's a good question. I think it it depends on the time. If the if the if the war in Ukraine is still happening, and then the some countries had to again, let's say, sanction and then eventually face a decoupling in certain aspects of uh, with China, you know, that's another hit to their own economies. Also, as well, if you look at who's sort of sanctioned Russia, a lot, it's a lot of Europe. It's the EU, the UK, the US, for example. So. A war in Europe is a lot closer to the UK, the EU, and, and you know, the US. It's a lot more, um, you know, it's a lot closer. It's, people feel it more. And also just having a war in Europe, it's it's almost like, damn, when was the last war in Europe? Okay, 1945, you know. So I think it would, I think personally, it, it sort of, it, it hits people more, that the fact that it's in Europe. Whether people would react the same with Taiwan because you've got to remember some countries like, oh, it's in Asia, it's just all over there, you know, which is such a, a simplistic way to look at it. But they might be like, well, do, you know, why would we want to go against China when they're such a big economic partner to us when Taiwan doesn't provide us as much? So in the end, countries look at themselves economically. You know, there's, you know, countries in Europe have done that with the Ukraine-Russia thing. Um, war. So... I don't know. I, th- I think there'd be more reaction for the Ukraine-Russia war because it's in Europe. However, the US and Japan, I think, will be the major supporters of Taiwan um, against China. And I think the White House has came out and said, well, you know, they've denied that no position on the one-China policy has changed. Biden, President Biden, has, has said, I think, two or three times that the US will support Taiwan in case of an invasion. And people thought, has he just said it by accident? Has he been misquoted? Is he this old president that doesn't know what he's, what he means when he says by supporting? But he's recently came out about two or three weeks ago and he did an interview with a American broadcaster, I can't remember who it was, and he was like, yeah, we will help them out with troops. So it's they're the two, I think US and Japan are going to be the ones that help out Taiwan. Who knows who else will follow? The UK will probably follow with the US. But, you know, it's it's all speculation at the moment, I guess. We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. So in 2019, I was in Hong Kong shortly after the protest started on the street. And you could see the, you know, there was military police stationed on the corner. There was a lot of a lot of tension on the street, but it hadn't really elevated yet because China hadn't officially came in and meddled in the elections like they very publicly did the next year and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Do you see if that happens in Taiwan, what will happen to the travel experience there and to the general experience of being there, even if you're an expat, how will that change? It's, it's difficult to say, really. I mean, I actually, you know, this question, I have to have a, a good think about it because the Hong Kong situation, you know, as, as much as Hong Kong is quite unique to the rest of China, very unique, let's say not quite, Hong Kong is still part of China and always has been. It's just been sort of under the lease or let's say the colony of, the, of, of, of Britain. So Hong Kong was always going to go back to China. 
Um, and also, you look at the geographics of it. Hong Kong is, can, you know, it's not an island like Taiwan, right? So, you know, you can get, you can go to Shenzhen in mainland China by twenty minutes now by bullet train from Hong Kong. So it's very close. So it's more connected in that way. For Taiwan, again, because it's an island, it, it's it's very different for that to have a similar scenario. You know, it's, I think the I think they're almost two completely different things because Taiwan is acting as if and and portrays and if you were to be there, anyone who goes to Taiwan would think it's its own country. There's no real thought that it's part of China apart from the culture. So it has its own currency, its own border controls, you know. Um, so if China was to, again, this comes back to like do a blockade or an invasion, first of all, that would be a lot harder than maybe what's happened when Russia entering Ukraine or China retaking control of Hong Kong because of the, ge- of the geographics of it. China would have to, you know, um, blockade with ships or send planes and get troops on the ground, which would be very difficult because Taiwan has its own defense forces. In terms of a travel experience, I mean, you know, if, you, if you've got China that would be attacking Taiwan, whether it would be by sea or by air, I mean, I would imagine that many airlines would probably cancel trips to Taiwan because it would be too risky. That just that, it would just be, even me, I flew over, actually, I flew over into Taiwan when they were doing military exercises and it was the concern. And I, I think I asked the airline, I was like, you know, is there any concern of like, I don't know, we might be mistaken for like a, you don't know, do you, right? Because you, 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 you don't really have any grasp of it because it's such a big, you know, area and you're 30,000 feet in the air. So I'd imagine airlines would definitely cancel flights if there was ongoing conflict at sea or in, 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 in um, or in the air. And, um, there would be obviously travel warnings. The US would do it for sure. Warn, you know, there's there's ongoing conflict there. Um, I mean, that's all I can think of really at the moment because I guess the first things first when you think of that situation is that how would the war, how would it pan out? Like militarily, how would it go? I think travel would be, it would be secondary for sure. And so travel is one thing, like leisure travel is one thing. And then what about the, the growing trend of, remote work people moving to other countries to to live and work and taiwan has a digital nomad visa that is pretty good that i think was called the employment gold card yeah is there any buzz around that do you think that programs like that in taiwan are becoming more popular or maybe less popular kind of receding due to what's going on uh, and kind of what's the prospect of that for the future I, I, I don't see anyone being discouraged by what's happening with China and like saying, don't go to Taiwan. I mean, you, you know, if you were to watch it on new family, family of mine back home, they're like, well, why are you in Taiwan? You really like danger. And it's like, relax. I have a media visa here. I have to work here. And there's not, it's super chill. Like I said to you at the start, right? Before we went on air. So there was obviously concerns from people reading it without any context. But I, I haven't spoke to anyone in Taiwan who was going to Taiwan about concerns. Maybe I've been speaking to the wrong people, but in terms of people relocating there and working online remotely, a digital nomad, I mean, it's a, it's a gold card visa. I mean, it's not like a lot of these digital nomad visas are popping up around the world now. Malaysia's just released one, um, and Thailand sort of has one at the moment, uh, newly released. But Taiwan's a lot of people, a lot of expats there. Again, people who I meet are teachers or journalists. 
and or IT professionals, if you like. So there isn't, it doesn't have that same vibe as maybe you might get in like Mexico or Thailand or Bali, where there's a lot of people, a lot of bloggers, you know, um, sort of like wellness sort of workers, people who work online, you know, work remotely who choose the destination and just obviously do their job. Thailand doesn't really have that vibe yet. It might increase. I think looking at Thailand's sort of attractiveness, it's all op- in the last two or three years, or maybe three or four years, it's it's just opened up to foreign journalists, you know, so in terms of the ease of getting a visa there. So they've just started to do that. So in terms of, you know, really trying to attract, let's say, the travel bloggers or the online workers, I it, it doesn't seem to be a, pr- a priority at the moment, but I guess there is ways people can do that through this gold card initiative. Um, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be like the talk of the town, if you like. There's other places within the Asia region that people probably would prefer to be. Moving outside of Taiwan a little bit, you move around Asia a lot, working, traveling, etc. What do people that are coming there for the yeah. first time to place it to the popular spots, Thailand, uh, you know, maybe Vietnam mm. now that it's been on the rise with travelers, what are people missing? What do people need to see? Well, I mean, obviously, post-pandemic, people just want... the First of all, it's the freedom, right? It's the unique aspect of like, oh, my God, like, you know, traveling for the first time in like two years and no restrictions. I think that's the, that's the key thing. I think in terms of specifically for Thailand, um, well, the, the Tourism Authority here said a few years ago that people come to Thailand for the food. That's the main reason. Now, that's one of the reasons why people come to Thailand. There's many reasons we could talk about why people come to Thailand. There's, there's the, the affordability... There's the beaches, there's the, uh, you know, there's the sex, you know, community. A lot of people go to like places like Pattaya and places like that, which is, you know, maybe for people a bit older, but there's not many different reasons people come to Thailand. Um, first time travelers though, I think it's just a mix of it all. The culture, the food, the fact that it's affordable, it's easy to travel around the beaches, the jungles. I think people just want that variety and it goes hand in hand with freedom. They want to just be able to free be free and know that they can afford it and just get around and see as much as they can meet people in hostels, party with them, you know, go on excursions, go scuba diving. It, that's what Thailand is. I think people come into Thailand for the first time. You've got to go all in. I think that's what it's about. I mean, that's what I did when I first came here 10 years ago. You do as much as you can, whether you, you don't know what you're doing or you do know what you're doing, you know, ride a bike, go scuba diving, you know, go and wash an elephant, eat food, drink Chang beer, you know, do it all. Do you see Thailand remaining as affordable as it is right now, or given how popular it's become with tourists, are price are prices rising? And do you think that mm. they're going to rise to an extent that it becomes not a, a preferred cheap travel destination among Westerners anymore? Well, look, it. it I think. I think. The, in the long run, the long term plan for the government, they want they want it to be more. Or they want Bangkok to be a bit like a Singapore. They've talked about cleaning up street vendor food, you know, street food vendors, because of various issues. And people are like, "Why would you do that to Bangkok? It's the soul of Bangkok to have street food on everywhere you go, and you can eat for like a dollar a meal." You know, so people, travelers, look at Thailand for that experience. I think the government and the, the tourism authorities' plans in long term is to. They've even came out and said recently, like they want, you know, inverted commas, quality tourists. 
which, you know, that basically is to refer to people who spend more money, which I think it's a little bit offensive to people who come to Thailand every year, even if they might not spend as much as the government wants, you know, they're putting money into the economy. So it's, I think eventually that's what the government wants and maybe they will get there anytime soon. I don't think so. But, you know, in years and years from now, maybe they'll find a way that prices will go up significantly. I think prices have went up anyway because of what's happened, obviously, with, you know, the war and, and, and you know, costs are rising everywhere. I mean, I'm from the UK and Christ, it's it's a nightmare for energy bills there at the moment. So um, Thailand's been hit as well for that. Um, but I think the more popular place it becomes, the more the local travel companies and, and the local businesses can put the prices up as long as they have that um, that regular return business. So eventually, perhaps. But right now, I, th- I still think it's affordable. Um, you got to remember as well, like Bali is, like you mentioned, Bali. Bali is like one place. Thailand's got so many different places. And I like Bali. I've been a couple of times. I don't know if you guys have, but like I find Thailand has much more about it because it's obviously you know you can be here in bangkok you can go to many islands you can go north you can go to some of the you know sort of uh countryside places rural you know cities and towns there's just so much more to discover um so yeah thailand it's popular it's popular prices will probably rise eventually but i don't think anytime soon they're just desperate for people to come back um and that's why i said they've legalized marijuana recently um, they've dropped some border restrictions for people from Saudi Arabia. They've um, they've uh, sort of dropped all COVID restrictions. So they really just want the numbers flowing again because they're so reliant on tourism over here. It's up to 20% of the GDP. So they're very reliant on people coming back. Were their, their COVID restrictions, were they harsh or were they pretty relaxed? Yeah, if you didn't wear, if you if you were caught without a mask, like a face mask in public, it was about a five hundred pounds fine. So whatever that is in US dollar, yeah. So so strict, yeah. yeah okay. It's pretty strict. I was yeah. Trying to think, Tim, was this yeah. the place that was it Thailand that if you broke quarantine or if you didn't wear a mask in public, the police would make you do push-ups as punishment on the street outside? I don't know. Was that Bali? It might have been Bali. There was one Southeast Asian destination that, and it was like this viral thing. And there's these videos of uh, these people not wearing masks, and the police would take them aside and they'd force them to do like a hundred push-ups, and that was the punishment. Yeah. I think I've seen something in Indonesia, in Indonesia before. That might have been which it. I think a couple years ago, a couple of backpackers had stole something from someone, and they were par- they were put like a sign was put on them around the neck, and they were paraded like around this little beach island, like, and it was in the media. I love, I'm a big, big fan of like the elementary school punishments, you know, because they, <laughs> they, they still get you. They still humiliate you. Because in getting, being embarrassed is the worst thing, right? You know what I mean? Paying a fine for yeah. like 30 bucks or whatever, which is nothing to some, you know, foreign visitors, then it means nothing. But to be embarrassed and be put in the media, it's like you, you kind of lose your street cred, right? Exactly. Or you kind of lose your, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. that that's, that's worse, I think, for some people. And, and rightly so, that, 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 I would definitely, you know, uh, agree with that sort of punishment being more proper around society. What about like driving? So do you have, I know in Bali, speaking of East Bali, you know, I, I've spent quite a bit of time there and you're supposed to have a, 
uh, either an international or a local driver license, not just your home license. Mm. But nobody does that. I don't know a single person that when I was there that actually had the local driver's license. And if you get pulled over, you just, you know, bribe the police real quick and you're on your way. Is that something you worry about driving and traveling around Asia or do you? No, I mean, what, what is it like in other places? Honestly, I don't drive in Bangkok. I mean, even if I had a car, I don't blame yeah, you for yeah. that. I, I would never want to drive in Bangkok. Yeah, no, no way. Um, got a good transport system here. You can get motorbike taxis, which is better because the traffic is always at a standstill. So I always take the, them sort of methods of transport. In terms of riding bikes, you know, I've done that in the past on the islands in Thailand. You know, um, I've never been stopped. I know that. Sometimes some people, if they show you like, you, I got, I've got a British driving license. I show that people can just be like, okay, whatever. I think it might have changed recently. I did read something about a month ago that Thailand's changed the laws now on people riding the scooters around islands, and that maybe um, they're a little bit harsher on it. But again, they're trying to find that balance of like, if they do it too much and piss people off, then people are, people are going to tell their friends and they're not going to come back. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of like, you know, they've got to try and find a fine line with it, with, you know, abiding by the law. And also, hey, we don't want to, like, scold you, but this is the law, but we still want you to come back. You know what I mean? So, um, I, you know, for anyone who's coming to Thailand, I would definitely look at what what is required. I'll give you some sensible advice, definitely. And, um, but you hear stories, like you said, from all, all different kind of people. You know, people you know, pay a bribe and that's it. They're off on the way. Other people get stopped for having no helmet on and, you know, they might get questioned more. I just, I mean, it's, it's a gray area. Let's say that. All right, Tommy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where, uh, where can people find you? Where's your work at these days? Yeah. Um, so Facebook, my Facebook page, tommywalker.co, um, my website, TommyWalkerMedia.com. Um, Twitter, TommyWalkerCO. Instagram, TommyWalkerCO. Fair enough, Tommy. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, enjoy those drinks tonight. Oh, yeah. Thanks, boys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EbbinFlow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.